is love? Love when somebody gets married or yeah, just love? Yeah, what about love? love when somebody gets married? Ooh, I don't know if that's appropriate enough, but um, technically, I don't know. Um, like you hug, you hug somebody. Uh, it means like you, like you love your family. And when you make friends, you like, you like love them. You share, you hug, you kiss. What do you think about kissing? Um, um nothing. That means you love somebody. Have you ever kissed a girl? Yeah? What is your mom? My sister. Do you have a boyfriend? Yes. His name's CJ. And he plays basketball at the school we go to. Where do babies come from? Your mom's tummy. Um, mummies! How did they get in there? Uh... What is your parents' favorite thing to do? Cook. What kind of things do you like to cook? Artichokes. What's your least favorite food and why? Artichokes. <laughs> Man, I'm so happy those kids are helping us with these talks. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. I, if, if, I wish I was sitting with my wife while I'm watching that because I got commentary on every one of those kids and what they're doing. <laughs> Artichokes. <laughs> All right, so we're talking about what we tell the children, and, uh, and the heart of it is there are some hard things to talk about in our world. There are topics in the world that are hard for us to figure out. There, there are things that are hard for us to lean into, and there are some things that are so complex that it's sometimes hard to even get God's heart in them. Like, God, what, what's your heart? What's your mind on this thing? And so we're trying to address those things. And honestly, we're trying to be as straight up as we can with them and really come from a biblical perspective and not back up when it gets challenging or those kinds of things. And we started by talking about, it was Resurrection Weekend, Easter weekend, so we started by talking about God is the God of resurrection. And that's, you know, that's not a big shock for those of us who follow Jesus, but it, it's a weird thing. I mean, resurrection, somebody who's dead coming back to life. And the deal is this, a God who can raise the dead can change the living. Man, if we could grasp that in our soul, if we could lean into that thing, a God who could raise the dead can change the living. Because sometimes we get in such a stuck spot in our lives. We go, I, I'll never change. This will never change. This will never get better. A God who can raise the dead can change the living. And I want to tell, I want to tell children that. I want to tell teenagers that. I want to tell college students that. I want to tell us that. And then we went on because we were talking about, well, what in your life needs a resurrection? Because all of us have that. Like, what in your life needs a resurrection? And then we said, well, what in our culture needs a resurrection? Because there's a lot of things in our culture that do. And so we talked specifically about ethnicities and race. And we got into this conversation where we had to talk about uh, black and white and how do we see one another and how do we relate to one another and those kinds of things. And today we come to the next part of our uh, series, which is what will we tell the children about sexuality? And what in our culture needs resurrection? Well, if, if in our culture the idea of sexuality doesn't need resurrection, I don't know of anything that does. 
because that does. And we, and we want to talk about it. We want to be uh, engaged with what does God say to us and how do we share with our culture? How do we interact with our culture in these kinds of issues? So uh, the, the, the question uh, for us, what will we tell the children about sexuality? And I want to, before we jump into the topic of it, I want to remind us of where we were last weekend. Because last weekend we ended with some application points. And I think the application points that we gave last weekend, we should start with those this weekend. So four things that I think we ought to lean into as followers of Jesus while we're uh, on this conversation journey. Number one, we learned from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, do not judge. When other people do it different than you, think it different than you, feel it different than you, whatever, do not judge. And the word that he used means condemn. Don't condemn. That's number one. That's Jesus calling to us. Number two, we said, whatever group you're from, and we're all from a group of, you know, something, and we're all actually from several groupings. We've got several kinds of groups that we're, that we're from or we're part of or whatever. Whatever group you're from, you're welcome here. That's the heartbeat of Lakeside. That's my heart for us. That's what I want our heart to be for others who come in among us. Whoever you are, you are welcome here. Number three, sometimes it's beneficial to do a gut check. Because whatever, whatever comes in our gut, this unfiltered thing, this, this, this thing that comes in immediately, we always look at it as holy because it came so fast, it must be true. It came so fast, it must be from God. But it's not always from God. It's not always holy. So it pays to do a gut check about the things we feel and think about topics that we're talking about. And then number four, be the first to reach a hand across a divide. Last week, the, the, dish, the issue we were talking about was race. And so we said, be the first to reach a hand across an ethnic divide. Be the first to reach a hand across a racial divide. I mean, why, why wait? Why, why do we wait for someone else to reach across to us? Why do we wait for someone who's different to reach across to us? Be the first to reach out across a divide and any kind of divide. Be the first. And with those applications in mind, what will we tell the children about sexuality? It's a big topic. There are so many things to talk about. We'll never get through them this morning. And I won't answer all your questions this morning. And I won't address every issue you got going on in your head this morning. And if we spent a 52-week series doing it, I wouldn't get to everything you want to talk about in that whole year-long series. But here's some of the stuff that we could tell the children or talk about with them. What do we tell the children about sexual identity? about male and female and lesbian and gay and bisexual and transgender and queer and non-binary? What do we tell the children about sexual purity, about marriage and divorce and remarriage and gay marriage? What do we tell the children about sexual ethic, about lust and fornication and adultery and swingers and same-sex attraction? What do we tell the children about sexual harassment and sexual abuse and sexual revolution? What do we tell the children about sexuality from God's perspective and sexuality from a single perspective and sexuality from a child's perspective or a teen's perspective or sexuality in a pluralistic culture or sexuality in the church or side A or side B or accepting or affirming? 
And what do we tell the children about sexuality in a post-sexual revolution culture or sexuality in a post-Christian culture or sexuality in the workplace? And what do we tell the children about sex in the president and sex in past presidents? And what do we tell the children about puritanical sexuality or surgically and medically altered sexuality when the ability to do something medically and surgically runs faster than our ability to grasp it morally and ethically? What do we tell the children about pornography for men and pornography for women and emotionally seductive novels? And what do we tell the children about celibacy and monogamy and polygamy and serial monogamy and sequential polygamy and cohabitation and hookup culture and bathrooms? And what do we tell the children about Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby and hashtag me too and hashtag time's up? And fortunately, time's up, so I can't tell you anything more. Let's go home. <laughs> That's a long list, and you, you could make a longer list. We together could make a really long list. What will we tell the children? And what's really hard is this is not an academic conversation. This is not just theoretical. Because something on that list that I just read lands on you on your family, on your loved ones, the people in your oikos, those people that God has put in the front row of your life, something in there lands on us. I told you last week when we got into the uh, conversation about race, it was really supposed to be about ethnicity and, and the person who's other, the person who's different from us. And it could be any kind of ethnicity that's different than our own. And yet the, the circumstances in Sacramento in the last month kind of landed in on us and exploded around us. And we said, we have to talk about that thing. And so it's like the Lord changed a little bit of the course of what we had to talk about last week, even though the subject was the same. The same thing happens today for me. Uh, As I planned this series out last summer and last fall, I, I had an idea of where this talk would be going. And then you know, the whole Harvey Weinstein thing blew up in October, and then, and then day after day after day, more men were accused of behaving badly. But for most of that journey, that was all out there. It wasn't in here for me. It wasn't around me. It wasn't in my oikos. It was people that I didn't know personally and didn't have a lot of concern about personally, although the issue concerns me a lot. Two weeks ago, a mentor of mine and a good friend of mine was accused of sexual misbehavior, sexual misconduct. And I go, all right, now it's right in here. And I have no idea what to make of it. This is a man that I love being accused by women whom I highly respect. And I don't know what to make of it. What will we tell the children? When we come to this topic, we have, we have to come with this in mind. Pain is always involved in this topic. 
which is so odd because our sexuality should be such a means of pleasure and enjoyment and fulfillment. And yet when we have the conversation, there's often so much pain involved. And we have to acknowledge that right up front. And I want us to hold on to one of our values that we have here at Lakeside, which is we love meekness. And I want to approach this with all the meekness that we have and all the meekness that comes from God. Because we don't understand everything and we don't know what the pain feels like for everybody. And so I want to come with that in mind. With all that said, what will we tell the children? If we're going to come from God's perspective, let's just start where God begins. So if you have your Bible, why don't you open up to Genesis chapter 1. If you're not familiar with the Bible, this is the easiest place in the Bible to find. It's called page 1. <laughs> if you don't have a Bible, you can, if you've got your smartphone, you can follow along with that in the YouVersion Bible app. We've got some notes in there, and so you can follow along if you want. You're welcome just to listen if you want. That's fine, of course. Let me read for you uh, Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 26. Now, this is, this is in the first chapter of the Bible. There is a song of creation. It's not designed to be a scientific, scientific textbook about creation. It's a song. And there are six stanzas in the song. They're each called by a day, like day one and day two. And when you get down to the second half of the sixth stanza, like afternoon of the sixth day, you come to this statement about what God did. It says, Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then there's a paragraph about what they could eat in the garden. And then it comes to this, verse, 20, just verse 31. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Here's what happens in that part of the song God created human beings, and when he created them, he created them by design. Design implies order. Design implies purpose. Design usually comes with beauty attached. God created his creation with design. Now, Jesus' followers, if you've been a follower of Jesus very long, it's probably not very hard to lock your head into design. Because sure, God created, and, there, and, the, and the world is orderly. The universe is orderly. This planet is orderly. And sure, there's some chaos sometimes, but generally speaking, it's orderly, and we get the idea of design. But in our world, not everybody in the world believes in design, in creation. Many people in the world believe in random chance, and that we got where we are by random chance. And people who believe in random chance don't see sexuality the same as people who believe in creation by design. There is a conflict of perspective that comes from that. But we believe God created the universe, and he created human beings by design. And when he created us, he created us human beings in his image, Nobody knows exactly what that means. There's no definition like, this is what it means to be created in the image of God. It could be a lot of things. It's, it's kind of weird because what does it look like to have an image of someone you can't see? 
What does that look like to have an image of a spirit or a spiritual being, which is what God is? So it's like, what do you mean he created us in his image? But one thing we know about that is that means we were created to be relational beings. When God says it, he says, let us make man in our image. And our Jewish friends who believe in one God, as we believe in one God, they would go, what do you mean? Uh, let us create man in our image. God's like, you have a mouse in your pocket? Who's we? Kimosabi? We, 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 we go, well, that's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is another whole series to get into. We're not going to talk about that. But what we know for sure is that God is a relational being. And he created us in his image and made us to be relational beings. And, he, and it says he made us male and female. He created us in the image of God and he made us male and female. That, and that's weird because we don't think of God as male and female. Again, we think of God as spirit. So in what sense are you know, we created in his image when we're created male and female? But that's part of God's design. And when he created us male and female, he blessed us. He said, be fruitful and multiply. Now, some people, and you'll, you'll know who they are when they talk about birth control, and they go, you shouldn't practice birth control because God gave us a command. He said, be fruitful and multiply. And I'm telling you, that's not a command. That's a blessing. When you think God had to sit in heaven and look at his creation and go, hey, would you guys get it together? Like, get together, please, and multiply? Now, he didn't have to ask. He didn't have to beg. He didn't have to command. That's a blessing, and that, that's what he calls it. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Our sexuality is a blessing. The expression of that is a blessing that God gave to us. And then God looked at all that he had made, and he said, it was very good. He looked at all that he made, including humans and our sexuality, and he went, yay, it's very good. I like it. And that picture represents God's ideal for our sexuality. Created in the image of God, male and female, given the blessing of being fruitful and multiplying. And then you come to chapter 2. Now, I'm not going to read chapter 2 for you, but chapter 2 is a unique account of creation. The Bible doesn't have one account of creation. It has two unique accounts of creation. The first one is a song that gives you the beauty of it. The next one is a story that gives you the specific nature of how God created human beings and male and female. And so what you find out in chapter 2 is that God created the man from the dust of the earth. In fact, he created man from something that he'd already made. And now he's got this man, and he puts a moral expectation on the man. He says, hey, I don't don't want you to eat from that tree that's in the middle of the garden, the one that's about the knowledge of good and evil. I don't want you to eat from that one. There's a boundary around that tree. God had a moral expectation for human beings and how they live their lives. And then God made a comment about man's life, and he said, it's not good for the man to be alone. Now, that doesn't mean you can never be alone. That doesn't mean you, it doesn't mean you can't go on a fishing trip all by yourself. You know, it doesn't mean you can't go shopping all by yourself. Or it doesn't mean you can't do what you like to do all by yourself. It doesn't mean you can't be alone. He just, and the word that he used for good is a word that just means desirable or beautiful. He goes, it's not beautiful for the man to be alone. It's not desirable for the man to be alone. Not forever, not for his whole life. 
And so it says God created a woman for the man from the man. God made the woman from something that he'd already made, just like he did with the man. God saw that it was good. And he said when he made the woman, he was going to make her to be suitable for the man, which means they were going to fit together. And that's a sexual term. The man and the woman, they fit together. And that's how God designed it. And when he designed it that way, he designed it for pleasure. And it says the man and the woman were both naked and they felt no shame. That's a comment on their sexuality. They were fully exposed to one another, fully vulnerable to one another. But they were not ashamed. What a gift God gave to us in our sexuality. What a gift. And they had this gift and they were both naked and they felt no shame until chapter 3. When chapter 3 came, a serpent, a serpent came along and he tempted the woman. He said, yeah, you know that tree that God said don't eat? Well, it's actually a really good tree and God's holding out on you. And he tempted her. Now, the temptation was not a sin. It was a sin for the serpent because he's the one who brought the temptation. When you tempt somebody else to ignore the, the statements of God or to reject the commands of God or the purposes of God, when you tempt someone like that, that's a sin for you. So that was a sin for the serpent. But to be tempted is not a sin. For the woman to be tempted in the garden that day was not a sin. When you have temptations in your life, those temptations are not a sin. It's when you nurture them that they become sinful. It's when you engage in them that they become sinful. Sometimes the men among us who are married get tempted to give their affection to a woman who's not their wife. The temptation is not a sin, but the action would be. Sometimes the women among us who are married are tempted to give their affection to someone who's not their husband. The temptation is not a sin. The acting upon it would be. And there are all kinds of temptations in our world. Sexual temptations, financial temptations, power temptations. There are all kinds of temptations in our world. The temptation is not a sin. It's nurturing it that's a sin. It's acting upon it that becomes the sin. And so the woman and the man, they acted on that temptation and they ate from that tree and they found out that sin kills everything it touches. The sexual revolutionaries never told us that. Some of you are old enough to remember the sexual revolution. Most of you were born after it kind, of, it kind of seeped into our culture. It revolutionized our culture. We are still living with the outcome of the sexual revolution, and it has not been kind to us. And someone told us that you could do anything you want sexually, and, and it'll be okay, and it won't hurt, and it won't, be, it won't damage you. It won't be a problem. You're free. 
Well, you may be free, but, never, but not everything that you can do freely is good for you. Not everything you can do freely is helpful to you. And sin kills everything it touches. That's what we found out in the Garden of Eden. And that act of giving into that temptation and rejecting God's direction, that act has shaded every conversation we've had about sexuality for the rest of history. That, that act has shaded every engagement we've had sexually in the rest of our history as human beings. You have God's ideal in Genesis chapter 1. He created us in his image. Male and female, he created us. He blessed us and said, be fruitful. That's God's ideal. And then time passed, and Jesus came. And when Jesus came, he had these encounters with human beings, he connected with other be- human beings. And when you go through the stories in the Gospels in the beginning of the New Testament, you'll find these stories about Jesus connecting with other individuals. One of those stories is found in Luke chapter 5. Again, if you have your copy of the Scripture open, you might want to look this up. Luke chapter 5 gives the story of Jesus pretty early on in his ministry. He's, he's walking through a community, and he has this encounter, Luke five twenty seven. It says, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus shows up in this place, and there's a man named Levi sitting in his tax collector's office. He's a a tax collector, and everyone in profitable, polite Jewish society hated him, which you understand. What is today? Tax day right here. You're like, oh, it's so good this year. They gave us one extra day to pay our taxes. Oh, great. And, and some of you already got your taxes back and you got a refund. And you're like, I got money back. I'm like, they kept most of it. <laughs> and some of you paid all that and then you had to pay extra. And you're like, you, you hate the tax dude. That's Levi. They hated him. And for a lot more reasons than that, they hated him. But Jesus comes along and he says simply to Levi, follow me. And for some untold reason, Levi gets up, leaves all of his stuff right there and follows Jesus. And he's so excited that this great rabbi has invited him to follow him that he says, Jesus, come to my house. We're going to have a party. We've got a banquet going on. So he brings Jesus in. The disciples come in. There's this banquet going on and it's Levi and his oikos. Again, if, you're not, if you've not been with us very long, just to describe this, an oikos is the Greek word for house or household or extended family or network. And who shows up at Levi's banquet? His oikos. 
And who's in his oikos? Who's in his network? Tax collectors. Yeah. Who are the people he hung out with? Tax collectors. Why? Because they're the only ones who didn't hate him. And he didn't hate them. They're all in the same boat together. So he invites them to the banquet. Who else comes to the banquet? Sinners. No, not them yet. Who else comes to the banquet? Pharisees. Yeah, the Pharisees were there, but we're not talking about them. Who does Luke say? Luke's the narrator. He's the writer. Who does Luke say comes to the banquet? The tax collectors and not sinners. That's not what the narrator says. Yeah, they, the teachers of the law were there. That's right. They were there. See, we skip over it. Others. That's what the writer says. That's what the narrator says. The tax collectors were there and others. Who do you think the others were? Sinners. Hold that, hold that thought. We're coming back to you. When you go to other stories in the New Testament like this story, you will find that the others included all kinds of people that the religious people called outsiders. And sometimes the others who were at these parties were prostitutes. And we go, oh, prostitutes? Yeah, they were there. They were the others. And sometimes in ancient cultures, some of the the way prostitution worked then was prostitution was usually connected to their religious practices. Now, not in Judea, especially not in Israel, especially, but even around them, there were pagan cities. And in those pagan cities, they had shrines to their pagan gods. And there would be prostitutes that would service people as an act of their worship. And sometimes the prostitutes were female and sometimes the prostitutes were male and they were all part of the others. And Luke describes it and he says, Levi had this party and the tax collectors and others were there. They're in the room, they're in the house and Jesus is there. And then, It says, and there were some Pharisees and some teachers of the law that were there. Now, they got invited too. The religious folks got invited too. And they're there. And the Pharisees come to Jesus' disciples. They kind of pull pull the disciples aside. They go, why do you guys eat with tax collectors and sinners? And who all of a sudden said they were sinners? Luke, the narrator, said they were others. The religious people said they are sinners. And Jesus simply called them sick. See, it's so interesting. When you try and learn Jesus' way of how do we live in this world, and you come across people that are the religious types in his culture, when the, when the religious ones, when the Pharisees focused on the others, they focused on judgment and separation. But Jesus, when it came to others, he focused on invitation and healing. The Pharisees focused on judgment and separation. Jesus focused on invitation 
and healing. And often in our culture today, those of us who are Jesus' followers end up being closer to the Pharisees than we are to Jesus. We end up seeing the other as evil. In regard to our sexuality, we come to these conclusions. We have lived for so long in our country with so many Christian, so much of a Christian background and so many Christian things built into our culture that we who are Jesus followers pretty much expect everybody to live like they're Jesus followers. But here's the deal. People who are not Jesus followers don't live like Jesus followers. And Jesus doesn't expect them to. He doesn't say, before you get into the banquet, we're going we're to give you a test. We're going to give you an exam. Make sure that you're like me. He just says, Levi, if you're going to invite somebody to come, invite them in. And some of them will be tax collectors, and some of them will be others. But when Jesus focuses on the others, he focuses on invitation and healing. And for some of us, right about now, a voice is going off in the back of our head. Yeah, 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 but you can't have healing till you know you're sick. You can't have healing till you know you're a sinner. And I would just invite you to stop for a minute and listen to that voice and determine, does that voice sound more like Jesus or more like the Pharisees? You know what? The truth be told, the voice in the back of my head is way more often similar to the voice of the Pharisees. I don't know why I have such a hard time leaving the camp of the Pharisees, which is about judgment and separation, and moving into the camp of Jesus, which is about invitation and healing. I don't know why I have such a hard time with that. And if that's the voice that speaks in your head... Maybe you're asking the same question. Why do I have such a hard time with that? Why is that the voice that comes into my head? And which voice, ne- which voice represents best the narrow way of grace? And which voice do you want to be your voice? When it comes to others, I want to go Jesus' way. Because my way, because it's so much like the Pharisees' way, is really ugly. And I want to go Jesus' way. Now, there is one more thing that he says to us that I want to make sure we have in our own soul. That is that there is a sexual ethic that the Scriptures provide for us that say, hey, when, when it's not about others, when you're not focusing on all the others and you're just focusing on your own soul and your own sexuality, how do you live that out? And there are many places in the Bible that talk about it, but there's one in particular that I, I have found really helpful. It's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Here's something written by the Apostle Paul about how do we manage our sexuality for ourselves, not about others, but for me, for you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says this, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, 
as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And then here it is. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. He goes, can I give you some words on other matters? Can I give you some words that will help you in these other matters, in which case he's going to talk about sexuality? He goes, here's God's will for your sexuality. It's always so great when God, when God comes to us in a part of the Bible and he goes, this is God's will. We're always looking for God's will. Here it is in regard to your sexuality. He says, I want you to be sanctified. Okay, that's a theological word that doesn't mean a lot to some of us, but it's a word that simply means be in the process of becoming holy. Be on the road to becoming holy. Be on the path that makes your life sacred. So I want you to lean into that which would make your life sacred. He says, I want you to avoid sexual immorality. And then here's the... Here's the bottom line for us. He says that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. When it comes down to you, when it comes down to your sexuality, control your body in a way that is holy and honorable. Now let's make that more specific. The word that Paul used when he, when he wrote that, when he wrote the word body, the word that's translated in the New International Version as body, it's the Greek word skewos. It's a word that means vessel or instrument or tool. Now, I'll reread that and insert the word tool, and it's going to get PG-13 really fast for you. He says that each of you should learn to control your own tool in a way that is holy and honorable. He's talking about your sexual organs, straight up. He goes, I want you to manage that part of your life in a way that is holy and honorable. Not like the pagans, he says next. Not like the people that tell you, oh yeah, do anything you want, it's all good. No, it's all painful. It all creates harm but a life that pursues holiness, even in our sexuality, finds health and finds God's blessing. When it comes to others, follow the way of Jesus. Look for invitation and healing. When it comes to you, live your sexual life with holiness and honor. Whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you hope to be married, that's what I would tell the children. Jesus, I pray for us today. I'm grateful, Lord, that you don't pull punches with it. You're straight up with it. You tell us what you want for us. You give us the ideal. You bless us. 
and I'm grateful. But Lord, I also know that in the, the, a room with this many people, there are a lot of people who have gone on the wrong path sexually. There are a lot of people who have brought in a lot of pain to their own lives. There are a lot of people probably among us who have had pain dropped on them from others. And Lord, that, for those of us who that has not happened to, that's almost incomprehensible for us, but it's not for them. And so, Lord, I pray for every one of us that you would give us your invitation to a life of healing, to a sexuality of healing, to a sexuality of wholeness and peace. I pray that you would give us that. God, thank you for loving us. We love you. We want to be holy and live holy lives before you. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.